Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. All right. All right, let's go. Exodus chapter 1. If you got your Bible, make your way there. Good morning. Good morning to our Mercy Northeast family. We love you guys and are excited to be worshiping together. Um, Listen, last week, if you're new with us here at Mercy, we jumped into the book of Exodus. We had an overview. Uh, So if you missed uh, last week to help kind of catch you up, I would encourage you to go and listen, watch that sermon, whatever, get up to speed on what we're doing here in Exodus. And the main thing we said was that whatever it is that you think about God, that is the most important thing in your life. It's what you think about God. It's the whole idea last week. We said we're going to see that time and again. What you think about God, it'll determine how you process your past. It'll determine what you think about your future. What you think about God will determine who you make friends with and how those friendships go. It'll determine, determine career path, love life, family, and parenting. Everything, the most important thing in your life is what you think about God. Now, as we walk through God's account of his deliverance of his people, In this book of Exodus, that's what we're after. We're after trying to see him rightly, right? To see God, to see his work, his character, and his purposes. That's who we're trying to see. That's the main agenda. And today, the people that are going to show us how to see God rightly are a group of Hebrew midwives. The book of Exodus is going to open by highlighting how a group of oppressed Women, most likely oppressed single women, went toe-to-toe with the most powerful man on earth. And the Lord blessed them. It's an awesome opening. And here's the thing. Both the most powerful man on earth, which is going to be Pharaoh or the king of Egypt. Those words are um, the same. All right, if you hear me say Pharaoh or king of Egypt, same person. All right, both Pharaoh and these midwives are going to act out of fear. One, the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, He's going to fear people. He's going to fear the future. And I'm going to use the word for that of worldly fear. That's the the things of this world. The other, the Hebrew midwives, they're going to fear God. And we're going to call that holy fear. And I think this simple, stark contrast between worldly fear, fearing the things going on in this world, circumstances, people, future, etc., and holy fear, fearing God, I think that is a stark contrast very intentionally put here at the start of Exodus. It's not subtle. In fact, it's kind of the main idea. I'll go ahead and give it to you right now for the rest of our time in Exodus 1 this morning, and we'll cover the whole chapter. The powerful, the king of Egypt, will be weakened by worldly fear, while at the same time, the weak, these oppressed women, the Hebrew midwives, will be strengthened by holy fear. And this sets a really important tone for Exodus. Worldly fear, this fear based in circumstances and the people of this world, y'all, it is real. And it can be a really powerful motivator in our lives. Fear will drive you, won't it? It'll drive you to all kinds of achievement because you're so afraid of failure. 
It'll, to- it'll make you totally transform yourself because you're so afraid people won't like you otherwise. It'll make you do little things like put 10 floaties on your kid when you walk by a puddle because you're so afraid of what is going to happen to them. Right? It's powerful. It causes us to be suspicious, anxious, guarded, overwhelmed, and overworked. Y'all, I think about me personally, my personal fear, I feel like in my in my mid-20s, when I started having kids, it was a fear of the future with them, that one of them was going to die. That was the fear that was dominating my life, causing me to have um, anxiety attacks. If you've ever experienced one of those, an anxiety or panic attack, where you're literally locked up frozen by fear. In my 30s, especially since we planted Mercy Church, over the past seven years, it's been the fear of failure. Right? I feel like it's been right there like a little devil on my shoulder as I'm leading the church, just whispering like something happens and there's a voice... The voice of fear going, this is what's going to take the whole church down. This is what's going to cause it all to fall apart. And I think, maybe I should say this. No, 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 don't say that. What will people think? That'll make the whole church fall down and crumble and everything else. Y'all, it's powerful. We all deal with fear. And here's why I'm bringing this up. You'll never think rightly about God until you deal with your fear. You never will. Fear is that prominent and that pervasive. And these Hebrew midwives are going to unlock something really important for us. The solution is not to fear less. It's to fear God. It's not eliminating fear from our lives, but changing the focus of our fear and how we fear it. That's going to set some of y'all free today. Because you're going to be set free from worldly fear only as you discover the more powerful, better fear of God. And this holy fear, here's what I love. It actually draws you in close to God. It causes you to be a, I don't know how else to say this, like a warmer person, a more generous person, a person who walks with peace in their lives. And that's because holy fear is something you were actually made for. And let me give you a working definition of holy fear that we'll see with the midwives. It is the reverential awe of God. It's revering and awing God. It's recognizing how big God is, how small I am, how holy he is, how unholy I am, but how good he is, how steady he is, how wonderful he is, how loving he is. And in action, this fear is releasing control, releasing control to the one who is actually powerful enough to control things and trusting that he does so for our good. Worldly fear is so defeating because we realize, here's what happens over and over. We desperately try to control something and realize we're not in control of it. It's what makes it so defeating. It's what leads to all that anxiety, to all that frustration. It's because we're not in control, but we're trying to be. Holy fear is realizing there's someone stronger and better in control. Now, here's how we're going to get there and unpack more of this holy fear. We're going to start by looking at what God has done. This chapter breaks down into three sections. I'm going to break it down into three sections. We'll look at what God has done, which is a huge place to start. That's where the Exodus starts. You might think the Exodus starts in the oppression of the Israelites, but it doesn't. It starts in reminding us who God is, which is huge and very important. And then after we see God and who he is, we'll see the powerful weakened by worldly fear, and we'll see the weak made strong by holy fear. And in all of this, what we'll see is I told you last week, the point of Exodus is to point us forward to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're going to see the hope of Christ in it all. All right. We'll start by looking at what God has done 
We're going to go through verses 1 through 8 in this section. Again, we'll hit the whole chapter this morning. Um, Some of you are newer to Mercy Church. When we open up God's Word, a lot of times what I ask you is, are you ready? That's to see if you are ready, okay? So you can just say yes. Um, Both campuses, you guys ready? Yes. Let's go. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Each came with his family. There's Reuben and Simeon, Levi and Judah, Issachar and Zebulon and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. The total number of Jacob's descendants was 70. Joseph was already in Egypt. Okay. To understand the God of Exodus, see God rightly? You have to understand the God of Genesis. Because the reason that our main characters today, the midwives, the reason they do what they do is because they know the God of Genesis. And the reason the king of Egypt does what he does is because nobody told him about the God of Genesis. So listen up, otherwise you're going to walk out of here fearing the wrong thing, just like Pharaoh did. So here it comes. I need about five minutes to give you the origin story, like the original origin story, all right? Um, Genesis, that's awesome. All right, so origin story. In the beginning, now I'm not going to go that far back, but we'll go a little bit forward. There is this God who made the earth, who made the universe, who made the animals and plants, who made people. That God, that God made a promise around Genesis 15 to a guy named Abraham. All right, this guy named Abraham, and the promise God makes to Abraham becomes the thread that is carried through the rest. The rest of the events recorded in Genesis have to deal with this promise God made to Abraham. And he says, listen, Abraham, you old man that has no children, I'm actually going to make your descendants number as many as the stars in the sky, and all the nations of the world are going to be blessed through your children. And Abraham received that and says he feared God. And Romans is going to tell us it was that fear of God, that holy fear of God that was credited to him as righteousness. He understood holy fear. He went through some things. He had his moments where he could either fear God or he could fear his circumstances. And when his circumstances got bleak, he chooses to fear God most of the time, not all the time. That's true of every Old Testament character. All right, he chose God and God blessed that. And the most important thing Abraham did was he passed down this holy fear to his kids. And by the time we get to Abraham's grandson, Jacob, who we just heard mentioned, God has added something to that promise. He said, I'm going to give you a land, a promised land, the land of Canaan, which is going to be important. So we look at these first five verses that looks like a roll call, Jacob and his 11 sons, and it says, they came to Egypt They came to Egypt because there was a famine where they were living. And one of Jacob's sons was already living in Egypt, his son Joseph. You go back and you read the last chapter of Genesis. Remember, you got the same author who authored Genesis, Moses, is also writing Exodus. This is like the next chapter in the story in many ways for him, right? Joseph's living in Egypt (laughs) because he was sold into slavery by all of his other brothers, But God remained with him, and Joseph clung to the holy fear of God despite awful circumstance after awful circumstance. He clung to that holy fear of God that was passed down from his great-granddad. So even though the world around him was really bleak, he didn't fear. This truth is repeated over and over in Genesis, and eventually Joseph rises. God gives Joseph great power in Egypt, change in circumstance. 
He becomes second in command to Pharaoh because of all the wisdom God gives him. So famine comes. Joseph is in a position to actually provide for people who can't provide for themselves. Jacob's sons come down to Egypt to get some food because they're back in their land and there's no food in the land. Right? Jacob goes to the grocery store and they're like, listen, man, COVID, I don't know. There's a lot of backup and we can't, no chicken available. All right, you're going to have to go to Egypt. So that's what he does. So they send the sons down into their horror and shock. The very ones that sold their brother into slavery, now that guy's in charge. Well, instead of enacting vengeance, Joseph retains that holy fear. Keeps his eyes not on his circumstances, because if you're fearing worldly things, then when you grab power, you'll enact vengeance. But he fears God, and in fearing God, what he says to them is, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. He's able to forgive. He says it was to bring salvation to his people. Only when you have the holy fear of God are you going to be able to forgive, because you'll find forgiveness from God. Your eyes will be fixed on him and not fixed on vengeance. So Joseph forgives them, and then Pharaoh, the king at the time, is like, well, hey, man, bring your whole family. Bring them all down here. Because Pharaoh's thinking, whoever this God is that Joseph worships, he's clearly powerful. So if I take care of Joseph, Joseph will take care of all of us, and his God will be on our side. That's the big thing we've got to see right here. We're reminded before we get into this whole interaction between midwives and Pharaoh that it is the God of the midwives is the God who has always been faithful to his people and to the promise that he made to them. That's what I need you to see from really the first eight verses of Exodus 1. The one all-powerful God will do what he says. you got to grab hold of that. That is Genesis speaking towards what's about to happen in Exodus. Is the one all-powerful God will do what he says. And it may sound a little bit like trite. I don't know. I told you one of the things that's going to happen in this book is going to shake some dust off of some old familiar truths for those of you church people that have been around church your whole life. And remember how good and gracious this God is. Because this is going to be the difference between the Egyptians and the Israelites. It's whether or not you're going to believe that. And verses 6 through 8 start to show us the difference. Verse 6 says, Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation eventually died. Now Genesis 50, again the chapter before, gives us a little bit more about Joseph's death. He actually gathers everybody up and gives a little speech. Genesis 50, 24, he said to, Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die. But God will certainly come to your aid. And here's the thing. At the time Joseph is saying this, they're living in the land of Egypt and they're enjoying a lot of prosperity. Things are really good. They don't like need aid. But he knows what's coming. God has shown him what's coming. He's saying, I'm a, this God's going to come to your aid and bring you up from this land to the land he swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The land of Canaan, the promised land. What I want you to see that the land of Egypt was never their home. It was a temporary place of residence, not their home. It was a wonderful blessing, but it wasn't their home. And Joseph is choosing his last words very carefully to remind them that the one all-powerful God is going to do what he says. And it would be a mistake for the people of God currently temporarily residing in Egypt to start thinking of Egypt as home. Even though things were really good there, they were temporary residents. And the New Testament reminds us that this people of God, the New Testament people of God, the church, is the same way. Hebrews 13, 14 tells us this world is not our home. 1 Peter 2, right after he tells us we are this chosen race, this royal priesthood, holy nation, he says, you are sojourners and aliens in a strange land. This world is not your home. 
In other words, these temporary circumstances are not saviors. They're not saviors, y'all. And here in 21st century America, we have been blessed with the comfortable, fertile soil, not too different than the best land in Egypt at the time. Some of you, God has blessed with wealth and family and all kinds of things. But don't mistake this circumstance for your Savior. Don't mistake this for your home. Or you will wind up just like the rich young ruler of Matthew 19, who followed Jesus right up until Jesus told him to give away all that he had. Which he doesn't do that to everybody in the Gospels. He does it to them based on what they're holding on to as their Savior. And for him, it was his possessions. The one all-powerful God will do what he says. This world, y'all, this world is not your home. And the one who has their fear, their reverential awe set on God is going to be comfortable there. Possessions can be held open-handed. The one who's gripping everything that they own because their fears of what's coming here in the world will never be able to see God rightly. Let's see. Let's keep going. Verse 7. The Israelites, excuse me, but the Israelites were fruitful and increased rapidly. So Joseph died. That's a, a bad thing. But the Israelites were fruitful and increased rapidly, multiplied, and became extremely numerous so that the land was filled with them. Why are they increasing rapidly? God is showing them that even with Joseph gone, that's why that little, is that a conjunction, but right there? That's why that's there. So even though that happens, he remains actively in control and is actively working to fulfill his promise. Right? He's making them as many as the stars in the sky. But then, uh-oh, something bad happens. Verse 8, a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. The new king didn't know about Joseph didn't know about the God of Genesis, the one who had saved his people and been faithful to his people time and again. The midwives that we're going to see in a second, they knew of the faithfulness of God. How? Super obvious question. But how do the midwives know to trust a God who, according, at least in the account of Exodus up to this point, they haven't seen any major move of God happen? How do they know? Somebody told them. Specifically, their parents. And the generation above them. And their parents' parents. The faithfulness of God, the holy fear of God was passed down to them as little girls. And they know the one all-powerful God will do what he says because their people have a history of seeing that. And they've been told about it. Their holy fear of God is rooted in the historical faithfulness of God. Parents, let me ask you a question. It was a little bit of a sigh, but it felt like just I had to say it. Do your children know the holy fear of God from you? Now, I'm not talking about cold, harsh fear, right? I'm talking about reverential awe. I'm talking about the drawing close. Do they see you worshiping God? And I, look, I'm glad that we have a kids ministry here so that you can send your kids in. Some of y'all with those little ones especially, you're like, an hour where I don't have them. Yes, Lord, please take them. Uh, you nap in the back. We know, okay? And we love you. Blessings on you. You're going to get out of the fog one day. I will say we need about 25 of you at Providence Road and I think like 10 at Northeast to join into our kids' ministry and serve our families. We had to turn people away this morning. I watched it, not because we're out of room in our facility, but because we're out of people who will serve and join in the ministry team, okay? So that is my call to some of you to step off the sidelines at the end of the game. Sidetrack, let me pull it back in, Okay. Listen, do your kids know? Do they know the God that you claim? Do they know your story? 
Christian, if you're a Christian, I'm not talking to you if you're not a Christian. If you're not a Christian, this is a huge moment that you're at church. Your kids are going to see that for sure. But if you're a Christian, do they know the story of how you came to faith in Christ? This right here is why we say that our mission for our kids' ministry, student ministry, our ministry to our families is to partner with parents to raise the next generation of disciples. We want to help you. You're the biggest influence on their walk with God. Do they know, do they know the story of how God saved you? Man, you can and should teach them about God's faithfulness through the accounts of Scripture. But don't neglect showing them that God is real and active now. Don't assume that they just know it and they're just going to get it by osmosis. In fact, all these statistics telling us about how um, increasingly students, our Christians, are graduating high school and wandering away from the faith. You know why? It's because their parents drugged them through a religious exercise instead of bringing them alongside and letting them see them worship the one true God. That's not only reason why, but it's a big reason why. And they see it in the small moments where parents are kind of begrudgingly talking about their relationship with God and the church and everything else instead of drawing them in and letting them see them worship the one true God. Listen, a day is going to come where they're going to have their midwives moment that we're about to see. What a gift it would be to their faith in that moment to be so familiar with the faithfulness of the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and mom and dad, and mercy ministry leaders, all like ammo in their minds and hearts to combat the worldly fear the enemy wants to use against them. Man, not only that, not only do we have the testimony of the church, every believer actually has the testimony of the gospel that he saved me. You think about Joseph, this new king that doesn't know about it. Man, each one of us, we get to remember that the same spirit of God that rose Christ Jesus from the dead is alive and at work in us. And the powerful God who saved me, who's with me, who has secured eternal life for me, who the church, Hebrews 12, testifies about, I can trust him no matter what comes. That's holy fear. Lots still to go. Let's go to verse 9. Let's see what Pharaoh does. Pharaoh said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and powerful than we are. So come, let's deal shrewdly with them. Otherwise, they will multiply further. And when war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So the Egyptians assigned taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. They built Python and Ramses as supply cities for Pharaoh. What is Pharaoh's ultimate fear? <laughs> the progression, you see it. The final fear is, and they will leave the country. What ends up happening in Exodus? They leave the country. I think it's just a little, this is even almost like a little bonus thing on fear. Not the ultimate point, but worldly fear is a terrible motivator for making leadership decisions. And in this case, his worldly fear of losing power leads him to disdain, catch this, the very blessing God had brought to Egypt. Power's his true God. He's afraid of anything that threatens power, and he's missing God because of it. And worldly fear will lead you this way. It'll lead you to put down others so you can elevate yourself. It'll lead you to build defenses, like defense walls, right, so that you're never in need from others. It'll lead you to constantly mistrust people. You might get really successful at building your own little tiny kingdom, just like Pharaoh did, but make no mistake, the fear that you're feeling will never be resolved by building up your kingdom. It'll actually only intensify. Why? Because now there's more stuff that can be taken from you. That's why this king is so paranoid. Watch what happens. Verse 12, but 
I love this. Every time things get worse, God is faithful. But the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied and spread so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. Well, they worked the Israelites ruthlessly and made their lives bitter with difficult labor and brick and mortar and all kinds of field work. They ruthlessly imposed all this work on them. Man, something beautiful is happening right here if you catch it. God is fulfilling his promise. Remember, numbers many as the stars in the sky. God is fulfilling his promise as they suffer. As their suffering increases, God takes them from a small number to many. That's what he promised he would do. And the one all-powerful God will do what he says. Y'all, it gets bad for God's people. Every time it seems to get bad for God's people, it also, we see the faithfulness of God fulfilling his promise. This is the second of three times where things look like they're going bad, but God is at the same time working something very good. And there's someone I want you to see here that suffering is bitter, but God is still faithful. Suffering's bitter, but God, I mean, there's three, you've got verse, I don't know. I was say this right. You know what? I'm just going to say it. There are three very big buts in Exodus 1, okay? There's verse 6, Joseph dies, but verse 7, the Israelites increase. Verse 11, they were enslaved, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. Verse 16, in a second, midwives are ordered to kill children, but however, they fear God and they multiplied. Listen to me. Suffering sets the stage for the work of God in a way that nothing else can because you're weakened. And as you are weakened, <laughs> you are given the opportunity to find strength in him and his plan instead of finding strength in yourself. Suffering isn't just the place where you make it through. It's so often the setting where God does a lot of his deep work. All throughout scripture, Old and New Testament, God's people suffer. They're not the powerful ones in most narratives. They are the oppressed and marginalized, oppressed by the powerful. And as they choose holy fear, depending on the one true powerful God, what happens over and over, God is glorified and they are strengthened because holy fear strengthens you. That's awesome. See this last section of chapter one. I'm going to read you verses 17 through 19. No, 15 through 19. Here we go. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, and check it out. He like calls two of them out and calls them into the court. The first whose name was Shifra and the second whose name was Pua. When you help the Hebrew women give birth, observe them as they deliver. If the child is a son, kill him. But if it's a daughter, she may live. The midwives, however, feared God. Holy fear. Even in the face of the greatest worldly fear I think you could get, which is the most powerful man in the world telling you what to do that would be against your God. They feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had told them. They let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked, why have you done this? Now they've got to give an account and let the boys live. Verse 19, the midwives said to Pharaoh, well, listen, the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. I love this. All right. Did they lie? Well, we can't actually know for certain. And I think that right there is the intent of Moses. Obviously, some time had passed between the command to kill them and the visible proof that they didn't. They may have gone, we don't know, they may have gone back home and said, hey, should you get pregnant, do not call us, all right? And then 
when we show up, it'll be, oh, we couldn't get there in time. What I do know is that they had their moment to decide who they were going to fear. Were they going to fear man or were they going to fear God? And at risk of their lives, they chose holy fear. And by the way, I will say, just to wrap up that lie thing, it is not their words, it is their actions that God blesses. All right? So verse 20, God was good to the midwives. And the people multiplied and became very numerous. Since the midwives feared God, he gave them families. And then Pharaoh commanded all his people, you must throw every son born to the Hebrews into the Nile, but let every daughter live. Man, in this day and age, the, the one that we're reading in here, you don't get more powerless than the midwives, and you don't get more powerful than the king of Egypt. And here they are choosing to defy the powerful because they feared the God of their people, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that they knew about, more than they feared the worst that Pharaoh could do to them. This was their moment, just like it would be Esther's moment when she would go in before the king as the one who had the opportunity, though it was going to be in front of a bunch of people who had bad motives against her people. She had the opportunity and she chose to fear God and protect the people of God. It would be Rahab's moment to protect the people of God at risk of her own life. The testimony of the courage of the women of God in Scripture are so powerful, and there are many. And God blessed these Hebrew midwives. He gave them families of their own, and you know what they did? They passed the story of the faithfulness of God they had experienced, and the fear of God, they passed that down to them. Listen, this I want you to see in this last part. Holy fear unlocks the power of God. It does, y'all. It just unlocks the power of God in your life. What happened? The Israelites multiplied. So did Pharaoh's fear. And that fact, you see the multiplication happening on both fronts. Like God's fulfilling his promise, holy fear, strengthening the people of God. Worldly fear is multiplying as well, and it's sending Pharaoh in a spiral. Now he's making his private plan public. And that move to say, throw all these baby boys in the river, that's what's going to set the stage for the Exodus. It will be this fear-based order that God, this is how much you got to see God is in control. This fear-based order is the very order God's going to use to make the greatest leader in Israel's history a member of Pharaoh's own household. So how do you move from worldly fear to holy fear? It's to embrace the truth this passage is pointing you towards. I told you this whole thing is pointing you to your need for Jesus. I mean, think about it. The attempt by a tyrant king to take the life of the son who he felt would threaten his throne. That's exactly how the story of Jesus opens. And Mary and Joseph experienced that holy fear, though, when the angels visit them before Jesus' birth. They experience holy fear when the shepherds come in from the countryside, the kind of fear that draws them close to God. They experience holy fear when the young boy Jesus is teaching in the temple from the scriptures. The disciples get around Jesus. They experience holy fear as he heals people, calms raging seas, sends out demons. But this fear didn't keep them from Jesus. It drew them close, even drew little children close to him. Why? Because the closer they came to that power, the more they experienced his love. They were called a family. They were given purpose. 
Because he used his power not to enslave them for himself, but in a manner exactly opposite of Pharaoh, he used his power to serve, to set people free from bondage, to give his own life as a ransom for many. And when you see Jesus' immense power, the God who did create everything, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob now made flesh in human form. You see that power put to work in a great act of sacrifice to save you and I from our sin that draws us close, doesn't push us away. The gospel says you and I were sinners in bondage to our sin, unable to save ourselves. The way Ephesians 2, I was thinking about this this morning, Ephesians 2 is going to say it. It's we were children of wrath. We were a part of the sons of disobedience, basically enslaved to the ruler of this world. But then what does Ephesians 2, 4 say? But God drew me right back to Exodus 1, where they were enslaved, but God. We are enslaved to our sin, but God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in our trespasses and sins. It is by grace that you and I have been saved. Christ came to make a way for you, to make an exodus for you from your captivity to sin. That's the whole point of exodus, Christian. The whole point of exodus is to set up a picture that then the New Testament says, that is intended to tell you about the salvation you can have from your Savior, Jesus Christ, from the bondage to your sin. But you got to receive it. Ephesians 2, 8. <laughs> you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is a gift from God. It's yours to receive. And when you do, you choose to follow a God whose power and goodness will draw you close. As you look up to him in reverential awe and holy fear, it'll draw you close. How could it not? When you accept the forgiveness he offers you and you make him Lord of your life, You don't find oppression and burden. You find freedom in serving the one who gave his life for you. Whatever you're fearing right now, whatever's controlling your decisions right now, I promise there is nothing like surrendering that. And it'll happen. For me, it's happened over time as I do it daily. It happened once when he saved me from my sin. And it happens daily as I surrender again. Lord, this is what I'm fearing. I know this is down here. I'm going to turn my eyes and my heart back to you in reverential awe of who you are and what you've done. I'm telling you, he does an incredible work of showing me how little these fears really are, and they don't have power over me because I'm his in Christ. I promise you there's nothing nothing like the peace that comes from the holy fear of God. Let me pray for you. Let me lead you in a time of prayer, if you would. We'll give you a chance to respond. Our worship team is going to be making their way back on stage at our campuses. But what I want you to do is just take a moment and respond. Between you and the Lord, what have you been afraid of? If you would, the courage, it takes a little bit of step of courage to admit this. What have you been afraid of? Maybe you need to, uh, we often do this at Mercy, just in a physical posture while you're in prayer is to Put your hands out before him, kind of open-handed. Say, God, this is what I've been afraid of. It's been the fear of the things of this world. Today, I'm lifting my eyes back up to you. I'm choosing to place my fear in you. 
God, I'm in awe of you and all of your goodness and your mercy that you would save a wretch like me. And I believe that you're still in control and you're still good. If you're not a Christian, I want to offer you, God is offering you salvation. Salvation from your sin. It's a free gift. You just got to receive it. What I just told you, you say, yes, I admit. <laughs> yes, God, I am a sinner. But I believe that Christ died on the cross to set me free from my sin. I believe it. He paid the price for my sin. He rose again. I believe it. And that was to set me free. Set me free from my sin and its consequences. I receive new life in Christ today. You tell them. Father, thank you for grace. May that be the thank you for mercy, the anthem of our church. We do not save ourselves. We need a Savior, and one was provided. You came. You saved us. You made a way for us to be reconciled to you. You sent your spirit to guide your church. May we worship in a way that is worthy of that great, great gift of salvation and security. May we grow in our holy fear, the fear of God, when the fears of this world fall by the side as we fix our eyes and our hearts onto you. We thank you and we praise you in the holy name of Jesus. Amen.